Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone and welcome to LawPod. I'm Rachel Colleen, a lecturer in the School of Law and I'm joined today by Dr Peter Manning who is a lecturer in sociology at the University of Bath where he specialises in human rights, transitional justice and memory studies. His research explores connections between human rights, transitional justice and memory, and his book, Transitional Justice and Memory in Cambodia, considers the different ways that memory is implicated in the ongoing prosecutions at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Hi, Pete. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. good. So we're here today to discuss uh, what sociology can bring to the study of human rights and transitional justice. Do you want to maybe start by telling us what is meant by a sociology of human rights? Yeah, um, it's a it's a really big question. Um, and I suppose, you know, you could do a really sort of um, short answer, um, which I suppose I'll try to first, you know, which is that sociologists are broadly interested, right, in your relationships with people have with institutions, with other people, you know, with um, political authorities, you know, how they identify themselves, how other people identify them, um, questions of sort of inequalities in those relationships, and therefore sort of questions of like politics and power as well, as well right? Um, so those are the things that sort of really, you know, animate the discipline, I suppose. And in that sense, when you think about what human rights are, um, as a set of sort of claims, I suppose, first and foremost, um, to be protected from um, abuses or, you know, the vagaries of nasty governments or whatever else, or um, as a sort of language for making those claims or as a set of sort of um, regulatory principles for the behaviour of governments, you know, then of course sociologists can be interested in it, right? Um, these, are, these are sort of prime objects of sociological analysis as such. Um, the slightly longer version of that story, I suppose, is that, you know, it's, it's really not until the last 30 years or so that sociologists have sort of come to this party, you know, and um, certainly the way that sociology in at least the last two decades has really tried to kind of self-identify and carve out its own disciplinary space, you know, or sub-disciplinary space as, um, as, as a field um, or as a sociology of human rights, a field of the sociology of human rights. That's That's much more more recent I suppose you know and that's that's tied I think at least to you know a disciplinary history where I think um you know as the canon I suppose is is sort of explained you know you go back to the beginning of sociology your undergrad students that are doing criminology will be familiar with I don't know Marx Weber Durkheim or whatever else right um you know and these people weren't interested in human rights they couldn't be interested in human rights you know because for Marx they were obviously you know distractions from the real sort of cleavages and uh, oppressions that were going on in the day for, you know, Weber, well, we wouldn't be interested in kind of normative rights claims or that kind of same thing. Um, so that sort of, you know, um, empiricism, I suppose, and positivism that was limiting engagements with ideas about rights in the first place um, at the beginning of the, the discipline. And that's funny, right, because that sort of shapes what sociology looks like from there. You know, it's interested first and foremost in sort of, you know, nation, nation states as synonymous with society so there's a sort of methodological nationalism going on in the discipline and that attenuates our ability to think about human rights um 
And I suppose as well, the sort of central concerns following from that within sociology have always been about questions of, I don't know, say stratification or identity, right? And the irony about all of that is that those are always human rights issues. You know, when you're thinking about kind of the big things that have driven sociology since, you know, the, the origin story, um, whether you're talking from, I don't know, feminist sociologists or sociologists of race and ethnicity, all of these things are actually, you know, human rights concerns. Wow. Thank you. That was comprehensive. So um, what then would a sociological approach to human rights give to law students or why should law students be interested in a sociological approach to human rights? Well, um, I think the thing is, I'm I'm, I'm a bit aware here that I don't want to sort of set law up, um, or I don't want to caricature or sort of straw man law as a discipline, right? And there's plenty of people here doing brilliant work, you know, from a sort of socio-legal studies background or, you know, critical legal theory or whatever else, right? Um, and and that will draw, you know, in very interesting sort of interdisciplinary ways across sociology. But I think one thing that sociology does do quite well is help sort of think beyond legalism a little bit, right? You know, um, and if I can kind of, you know, use legalism as the sort of, you know, the placeholder, I suppose, that I'd be not, not quite attacking, but I suppose querying, right? That's where sociology, I think, is most useful because first and foremost, what's it interested in? It's interested in context, you know, it's interested in history and it's interested in power right and these are questions that that legalist tendency tend to try to or it tends to suppress at least a little bit um what do you mean by legalism legalism well i mean i think what i'm getting at is that you know you need more than law to understand law right uh, legalism tends to be you know it's a tendency that's quite self-referential right um and you know, let's say I'm, I'm delivering my first sort of undergraduate lecture of the year, right? Um, a human rights course, you know. I mean, the first thing I'll do is is ask the students, you know, I don't know, what human rights? Or give me an example of a human right. And someone will say something like, I don't know, the right to free expression or whatever, you know, basic sort of civic and polit- political right. Or they might say, I don't know, uh, economic and social and cultural right, you know, whether it's like shelter or housing or whatever else, you know. And then I'll say, well, you know, where do these things come from? You know, and they'll say, either, I don't know, uh, you know, because... Because the UN said so, or you know, or because of because it's just moral, right? Or you know, it could be something. It could be something else, right? Because it's politically important, you know. And at that point, what you're what you're doing immediately is starting to disentangle the fact that hu- human rights aren't just in sort of treaties and covenants, right? You know. So there's we've got to think about this. You know, even just in those examples there, you can think there's a kind of philosophical lineage here. There's a history that you trace back to the Enlightenment in terms of human rights that people have to be sort of on board with. Um, you know, there's a whole set of sort of institutional assemblages and um, configurations, whether you're talking about the sort of big organisations, right, or the sort of, um, you know, very mobile sort of international NGOs or all the sort of more domesticated or domiciled NGO groups and then, you know, activist communities. Um, and in that respect, you know, you're already starting to think about human rights, not just as something that exists within, you know, within the black letter, I suppose, but it's something that's, you know, practically used, practically sort of work with um, and what I'm getting at is that you know um, what what I try to encourage students to think about is that these these ideas whether you're talking about them in their most general form right you know in terms of sort of the you know universal declaration of human rights or whether you're talking about you know how human rights are mobilized in any given case or instance there's a there's a sort of contingency that we've got to recognize you know they don't have to look the way they do um, and so in that respect I think you know you're encouraging students to to um, really look at this topic as something that's sort of living and breathing, and it's not exogenous to the social, but actually 
constituted by the social, so to speak. And say, like, you know, say our undergrads came along and you had to give one lecture on what sociology brought to human rights, what would the kind of main theoretical contributions be, do you think? Well, I think, um, I mean, there's a, there's a few. So, so, I mean, this is where things get a bit tricky, I suppose, because I think within, you know, this subdisciplinary space, right, that, you know, we, we might call the sociology of human rights, you know, and, and, and we're, to be completely candid, you know, we're... Um, I think we're, you know, we're volunteering ourselves for a sort of coherence that, you know, that, that we don't necessarily have to sort of, you know, wear as a badge of pride. I think actually there's a division of labour that's quite important in all of this, right? I mean, in terms of what sociology does with human rights, you could be talking about questions of perpetration, right? You know, you could go back to sort of the Milgram tests. You could be talking about BAM and, you know, rereading the Holocaust. You could be talking about, you know, a lot of the work that goes on in sort of perpetrator research, right, about social context and how that informs the perpetration of human rights abuse. Yes, that, that's the sort of thing that could go into a lecture. Um, you know, sociologists have had a crack at trying to explain or offer sort of versions of, you know, foundationalist theories of what a human right might be, right, or where human rights come from. You know, so if you put aside all the sort of, you know, Enlightenment philosophy, right, we're not talking sort of Kant and Locke and whoever else, right, you know, sociologists have had a go at this as well. Brian Turner came up with a theory of uh, human rights, you know, based on this empirical idea that because we're all kind of precarious and fragile... As a sort of universal common experience, you can sort of derive, you know, the sort of the need um, for human rights on that basis. Now, I think probably what I, I would want to do, right, having kind of, you know, offered those two sort of different forms of sociological sort of contribution to discussions about human rights or understandings of human rights is say that um, I think the most important stuff that's going on, at least at the moment, is based on a more sort of constructionist reading of human rights, and it's more interested in that question of contingency and particularly the relationship between contingency and power. Um, and so in that respect, you know, I mean, a lot of the stuff I teach would be, you know, maybe um, in dialogue about the Genocide Convention, for example, you know, it's shaping, it's framing, you know, who's left out, who's included, who's not, um, the sorts of groups, for example, that, that you know, just neglected um, the implications of that, um, and also the sort of uh, framing of um, questions of intent and, you know, wh why these things matter, what, what, what sort of disciplinary sort of um, authority actually kind of constitutes, the, you know, the wording of those particular documents, right? So, so you can run exercises like that. How, how would you define human rights? How would I define human rights? Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I mean, this is it, you know. Um, you know my, my whole take in the work that I do is to sort of follow you know, how, how human rights are made meaningful in context, right? Um, you know, in that, in that respect, I mean, it's a bit of a cop-out, right, I suppose, in the sense of kind of doing the, doing the foundationalist work. But my argument is that, well, you know, that's not my task. You know, my task is to look at how people are implementing and using and making human rights arguments meaningful in different contexts and with what effects, right? Um, and, and by doing that, I think that's when you can ask questions of, well, how, how, this isn't inevitable, you know, how could, how could this be better? How could this be more transformative, right? Yeah, so then if we think about that, how do you translate that kind of inquiry into something that's practically useful or that helps us, you know, better combat state violence or oppression? I think, I think the thing to remember um, is that what you've got is a set of sociological critiques um, that the 
might say, for example, you know, human rights are um, very Eurocentric, right? Or human rights lend themselves to forms of imperialism, right? Or can constitute forms of sort of imperialism. Um, you know, and you, when, you know, when Rumsfeld, for example, right, you know, justifies the war in Iraq as a you know war in the name of human rights back in 2002, right, imposing sort of you know, human rights and democracy from beyond, right? You, and you recognise that human rights can have sort of... Um, effects that are contradictory to its sort of, you know, spirit and ethos, right? And that's an argument that you trace right back to sort of the origin story of human rights. That's, you know, perpetual peace and Kant and all the arguments about cosmopolitanism and whatever else. I think um, the point I'm making is that that sort of critique is useful and of its, its own right, first and foremost, right? And, and in terms of the way um, some sociological theorists of human rights um, approach this, they would say that's an important step, first and foremost. Um, I think the second point is is that, you know, what, what you see is the sort of academic writing coming out of not necessarily that, um, what might maybe informed by those two kinds of critique, um, but not necessarily um, with such a hostility towards the sort of human rights project in its sort of mainstream, um, but at least asking more of what it can can deliver. Um, yeah, and, um, and so I think in... in I mean, they're, 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 we've got examples in front of us, right? In your book, one one of the things that you know, this is victims' trustee, international criminal law, right? You know, you're you're talking about what what victim participation can offer at the tribunal in Cambodia, and you're basically asking it to sort of deliver more, and that's predicated on an argument that sort of you know recognises the contingency of that mechanism and of the law that underpinned it as it came into existence, right? So, so in in that sense, you know, I I bracket you in that sort of second category. You know, somebody who's not necessarily sort of, you know, um, you know, hostile to the human rights project, but is certainly, so certainly, um, you know, I would say cautiously critical, but sympathetic to to these things. But you know, at least informed by that sort of spirit of critique, right? Um, and then, you know, from, on that basis, that can inform, you know, engagements with activists, engagements with um, practitioners, engagements with you know, people who are who are responsible for creating and and maintaining and reproducing these sorts of you know legal instruments. So, and how has your background in this area then influenced your own work? Uh, this is, I mean, you go way back because I, I my sort of story starts with all of this stuff, like as a wet behind the ear sort of um, you know backpacker back in Cambodia. I mean, like, we're talking like a long, long time ago. You know, this sort of you know, white white boys' orientalist fantasy, right? Where you kind of think about Cambodia as this sort of, you know, slightly wild west place. You know, the war had just ended, and I was supposed to sort of travel all around Southeast Asia, and you know, that, all of that's really problematic. And I kind of been trying to sort of write against that a little bit, I think, in the work that I've done since then. But but that experience certainly, um, I ended up working over there basically for a year, um, and you know, I was really struck actually by by the dissonances between you know that sort of language, right, that we encounter all the time, right, in the press and and a lot of the coverage of Cambodia is this sort of corrupt, you know, backwater that, you know, is violent and dangerous and, um, you know, and is, is, is sort of politically dysfunctional, right? Um, and, you know, and the, and the culture is absolutely amnesiac because the state tells everybody not to remember anything, right? That, that sort of, you know, newspaper narrative you get quite often. And, that, that you know, that's really longstanding. That's a sort of very um, well-rehearsed trope that's sort of been wheeled out to describe what's gone in Cambodia for, for, for years. You know, you get that almost in... Um, I mean, this is a point that I think Rachel Hughes has made, actually, in, in some of her writing about the tribunal, certainly. You know, you get that almost in the, the Lonely Planet guides, but also, you know, as much as the, the sort of, um, you know, agonised London Review of Books type 
sort of commentary on this sort of thing. Um, but at least in that year, you know, I, I, I was struck by the fact that, you know, people were saying, okay, nobody talks about this, nobody remembers what happened there, this genocide in 1975-79. Um, yeah, this experience where 1.7 million people have died, right? Okay, so, they, you know, at that time it was, what, 30 years afterwards, there or thereabouts. Um, and, and actually people were talking about it, right? But they just weren't talking about it in the ways that we were equipped to sort of recognise. You know, it's not like there was, okay, public discussion about it. It was, wasn't on the school curriculum at that time it is now um but back then certainly um you know i can remember kind of friends you know with their kids you know and they'd be saying you know if you don't eat up all your rice the pulp pots will come and get you that sort of thing you know and so, so actually you know this this idea of sort of amnesia or you know um, a pathology of memory right was was i found problematic you know um and if, even if i didn't sort of you know clock it straight away that informed Certainly kind of, you know, how I ended up writing like an undergrad dissertation and a master's dissertation and then deciding to write a PhD about this, what I thought would be a sort of um, initially, you know, a sort of sociological account of, you know, the, the tribunal as a mechanism that was supposed to sort of work in the name of reconciliation, right? Because the whole idea, you know, underpinning the tribunal was that it was prosecuting only a handful of senior leaders and, you know, on that basis there's a sort of de facto amnesty for for lots of lower-level Khmerus, right? And if you've got this tribunal that's sort of writing a particular history in a particular way and it's trying to sort of discipline memory in a particular way, if you've got sort of localised divergent memories that kind of think about things or remember things or reproduce memory in different ways, well, maybe that has implications for how we think about people reconcile around shared accounts of the past, right? That was the sort of question I embarked with. I mean, it's obviously, like, way more complicated than that. You know, that was sort of the... For any sort of PhD student that's listening, that's when your sort of research question starts, and then you know actually just so you what know, did get you end up the finding? And it sort of blows up, and that's sort of the fun part. So, so what did you end up finding? Well, I think the first thing is that you know you, when you're, I mean, this is really that question of the the intersection of human rights, transitional justice, and memory studies, right? You know, um, certainly, you know, just a very, very, very brief sort of pressing. I suppose memory studies is this sort of you know, interdisciplinary space itself, right? Which, again, kind of wants to have a coherence when it's got a hell of a lot going on and doesn't necessarily have to sort of, I think, um, spell out its own coherences in the way that it wants to. Anyway, it's it's interested in the first place, right, about how groups, you know, um, come to remember um, shared experiences or, you know, constitute themselves, identify themselves as groups as such on the basis of kind of collective memories, right? That was kind of the Halvax take and then memory study sort of grew up you know responding provocatively to sort of the problems with that that sort of set of questions anyway i mean so you, you can think straight away that there's a relationship then between kind of how groups remember the past you know um and then how tribunals sort of you know uh, didactic mechanisms as much as sort of you know delivering you know attributive verdicts right or punishment or just whatever else straightforwardly um you know, in just much in the same way, right, as, you know, you think about a truth-seeking mechanism or a truth commission, there, there's a relationship there to sort of producing shared accounts of the past, right? And so memory is sort of implicated in the in the sense of, um, you know, transitional justice requiring us to um, at least at least think about the sort of the stories that are told about the past, right? So um, the sort of, the, you know, people talk about narratives, for example, you know, story, the sort of content of memory or content of, um, of you know, shared histories. Um, but I think actually what, 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 what really, um, what, what I found 
more interesting was the way in which memory's not it's not just the sort of, you know, the fodder, the sort of, you know, the content as such. It's the rallying cry, right? It's the rationale, it's the justification, but it's also the sort of, you know, at, at times explicitly the sort of, um, you know, the, 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 the optics through which people are uh, justifying these sorts of interventions, right? I mean, it's very hard to think about doing transitional justice um, and evading that sort of language of, oh, we've got to come to terms with this past, you know, or, you know, dealing with or moving through or working through. And so suddenly you've already seen this sort of weird slippage of, you know, concepts and ideas, not, you know, in any sort of, not defined in any necessary precision or used with any sort of technical purpose, but they've slipped, you know, they're mobile, they've moved across, you know, from a sort of, you know, therapeutic, implicit, loose, common sense understanding of what, um, what experiences of atrocity entail to, you know, justifications for mechanisms which are, which are fundamentally political, right? Um, you know, whether you're talking about a war crimes tribunal or you're talking about a truth commission. Um, and I think that, you know, there's something very interesting in that respect in terms of the way, you know, injunctures to remember, you know, we never again, right? You know, we, we must prevent these things happening again. All of these things have a relationship with, with memory that, that works in, in, I think, really complicated, interesting ways. And where are you taking your research next? Um, at the moment, I'm doing. I'm working on a couple of different projects. So, so as um, I've been doing a lot of work on um, genocide education in Cambodia. Um, obviously, I wrote wrote the book about um, Cambodia. Yeah. So, so doing a. Uh, I've been doing work on a grant called Changing the Story that's led by the University of Leeds um, and Paul Cook at the University of Leeds. Um, and this grant, um, this project, is really interesting because it's trying to build inclusive civil societies with and for young people um, and it's particularly interested in arts and education approaches right and we've been doing a lot of cool stuff in Cambodia where actually we're engaging former perpetrator communities right um, so former members of the Khmer Rouge um, who quite often are very stigmatized but also um, are very important in the way the Cambodian state understands reconciliation um, and therefore uh, afforded or have been afforded a space, I suppose, within a number of sort of NGO projects um, or civil society-led projects um, in terms of um, including their sort of stories, right, of not just sort of the genocide um, uh, and the perpetration and commission of the genocide and the guilt of the leadership especially, right, um, but 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 um, they're, also, they're also their experiences of the war afterwards um, and how, how that could be drawn upon and inform these basically um, civil society-led led educational initiatives, right? Um, so we've been doing a lot of work with participatory video, for example, um, getting students and trainee teachers to to make their own films um, with lower-level perpetrators and see what comes out of that. Um, what do you hope will come out of that? Well, we'd hope that the, um, the films that we produced um, would be used um, or seen by other students. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, right? Because when you're working with really contested history, right, and when you're working with what is fundamentally con contested memory, um, in some ways, w w when you can see positive things happening, right, you can see a sort of rehumanization of these sort of stigmatised groups, you know, um, and the lower-level perpetrators were themselves quite often, as we understood or understand them, complex victims, right? Um, themselves, you know, they might have also lost relatives or might have also, um, you know, suffered under the Khmer Rouge. Is there a risk, though, in giving them that kind of platform? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so this is one of the things we're finding, right? So, so the, the double-edged sword is that, you know, what we, what we can see in these videos sometimes is that actually there's often um, 
space at least afforded for them to to let's say locate themselves perhaps in ways that um other other victim constituencies i think would find problematic right so so even as you can see sort of reconciliation occurring you know and i'm very skeptical about that term and the concept and that sort of sort of assumptions about what it entails you know um in this instance it's it's also certainly generating i think you know material that could be provocative i think for for other people what's your own ethical obligation when something like that happens these kind of unintended consequences well, I, th- I think, um, you know, as a researcher, it's quite interesting because I'm following this, you know, um, you, you can't detach yourself from from the sort of, you know, the projects and the initiatives that you've you've set in in motion. But but um, I think I think if I was so concerned to such an extent that, you know, this, that, you know there's any sense of sort of denial or revisionism going on, you know, then, then that would be a problem. At the moment, really, all we can see is that this is a space in which it's very easy for former Khmer Rouge to paint themselves as, as, um, as victims. And the problem is, is that at the moment within Cambodia, right, that's fine because that's what the government kind of wants, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so the ethical question arises as much for the context as it arises sort of for me, right? Um, and so I think what, what the obligation really is then is just more research. You've got to reflect on that really critically. I think it's really important and compelling um, in terms of the sort of lessons that we can yield from that. Yeah. So much ground covered there, Pete. Thank you so much. Um, If law students were listening and wanted to maybe learn a bit more about these connections between human rights and transitional justice and memory, what kind of like starter readings would you recommend for them? Yeah, um, I think I I was really lucky when I started my PhD to work a bit with Stan Cohen um, at the LSE. Um, And and I might do a misattribution here because it was either Stan himself or Ron Dudai describing Stan's work, but the, broadly the corpus was interested in why we pay too much attention to some things and why we don't pay enough attention to others, right? And there's a sort of you know basic principle for why you go out and do sociology. I think that's really important. It's a really useful way of thinking about not just memory but um, transitional justice and human rights as well. So there's a book, States of Denial, that I'd really urge everybody to go out and read. You know, it's a fantastic book. So that would be my top top tip. And then anything by... Um, my my former supervisor Claire Moon. I'm an acolyte, you know. <laughs> um, she she's she's definitely spot on a lot of this stuff. Um, and then of Kieran as well, obviously, right? Got to kind of give a <laughs> shout out to Kieran, I suppose. So, yeah. All right, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.